Good afternoon and welcome to Cinema with a Twist right here on WIOX Community Radio, serving the Catskills region on 91.3 FM and to the rest of the wired world on WIOXradio.org. I'm, as always, your curious host, Dwight Grimm, and thanks for joining me on our semi-monthly journey into the world of films and filmmaking with a dash of mixological intrigue. We have a wonderful guest for you today. Uh, Jack Epps Jr. is a veteran screenwriter with such credits as Top Gun, The Secret of My Success, and Legal Eagles. He is also the professor who chairs the University of Southern California's prestigious John Wells Division of Writing for Screen and Television. His book, Screenwriting is Rewriting, is an important text for both student and professional screenwriters, and I am really, really looking forward to speaking with Jack. But let's just do a quick once around the business and see what's happening uh, at the box office. Uh, not surprisingly, Jurassic World uh, has chomped its way up to the top. It is in the number one spot uh, this weekend, uh, this past weekend. Uh, it did $148 million. Uh, at the box office, pushing Incredibles 2 into the number two spot uh, with $80 million, uh, bringing their domestic gross to th- just about 350 uh, Ocean's 8 is in the number three spot with uh, $11.5 million. Tag uh, drops to the number four spot with just a shy bit over t- uh, $8 million. And Deadpool 2 remains in the fifth spot with $5.2 million. Uh, interesting story making the rounds out of Dubai today. As you might be aware, the entirety of the uh, Emirates construction force is made up of migrants who come from India, Bangladesh, and, back- and Pakistan, uh, who typically live in uh, temporary camps around Dubai. There is now an organization called the Mobile Cinema Dubai, which has taken a double-decker bus. It's kitted it out with a screen on the side, and it's traveling around uh, these temporary camps providing free movies and refreshments and hope, hopefully some respite uh, to, from the onerous working and living conditions they've got there in Dubai. As an outdoor movie guy, I, I love this idea. Uh, sad notice for uh, Blues Brothers fans, the legendary Matt Guitar Murphy passed away on June 15th. At the age of 88, Murphy was one of the premier sidemen in the blues business and worked with all manners of legends, including Willie Dixon, Memphis Slim, and Etta James. Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi uh, were introduced to him, and he became an important member of the Blues Brothers Band, both for the movie, movies, plural, uh, and when they toured. So fair winds to Matt. And finally, just a quick uh, uh, plug for our friend of the show, Doug LeClaire. He is back at the Rosendale Theater on the 29th, uh, bringing with him, of course, the Asbury Films short film concert. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to check out an Asbury Shorts, please consider doing so. Uh, we've hosted it twice at the Greenville Drive-In, and they're always a very well-selected uh, group of short films. I know Doug loves bringing it to the Rosendale, and why wouldn't he? It's a great theater. Um, so uh, if you have a, have a free night, uh, consider going to uh, the Asbury Shorts at the Rosendale Theater. Um, all right, let us bring in our guest today. Jack, are you there? Jack? Oh, excuse me, I had the mute button on. Yep, there you go. <laughs> no worries. Funny thanks. how that works. Exactly. Thanks Thanks for joining us today, Jack. Um, as, as we mentioned in the intro, you have had a long and distinguished uh, screenwriting career. And, you know, in the interest of, of storytelling, why don't we start from the beginning? How did, how did you decide that screenwriting was going to be, you know, your, your lifetime? Well, uh, I actually came into it sort of backwards. I started as a filmmaker. I was an undergraduate at Michigan State University and just went to a film festival, student film festival, and sort of said, well, I can do better than that, and took a couple of classes and made some films. 
and really my, my original role was to be a filmmaker or a director, came out to California in about 1972, which was a great time to come out here. Sure, absolutely. And realized that to be a director, you need a lot of money to get equipment, and right. very difficult to, to get equipment. And so I could direct on paper and start writing scripts as a way to direct on paper. Okay. And um, they, basically I, I teamed up with Jim Cash, my writing partner, and next thing you know, we sold something. And at that point, it's like, wow, people give me money to do this? That's <laughs> awesome. And found that I really enjoyed writing uh, because you are making a movie in your head and putting it on paper. Uh, and it just sort of took off. Uh, I mean, it took a lot of work. It didn't take off instantly. It was a lot of sweat, toil, and trying to figure out what the screenplay is and how do you tell a story on paper. Absolutely. And it, so now if you arrived in Hollywood in 72, that would have been in a, a really awesome sort of sweet spot uh, as far as some of the some of what was being written at the time. If you look at things like uh, Hal Ashby's work and, and what was what was coming out of, um, you know, almost out of the Corman school, you know, some of those guys were graduating to do some really interesting things. Um, you know, what was influencing you starting in 72? Like what, what were the films that, that were really speaking to you then? Well, it's interesting because, you know, part of it coming out of college, I was very much into Ingmar Bergman and all these sort of, you know, these very um, symbolic uh, uh, and, and films. And part of, for me, the journey became finding out what I really wanted to do right. and finding out what I wanted to write. And I came to the conclusion that while I loved all that stuff and in French cinema, I was really a big movie guy. Right. And for me, it was about writing the big movies on screen for the for, for the public at large. And part of that is I'm from Detroit, Michigan. And Detroit was a city built in the 20s. Right. Huge movie palaces. So I grew up in these really giant theaters watching these big screen, you know, great movies. And I realized that was my DNA. So part of it was was uh, connecting with that side of me. Um, <clears throat> some of my, my greatest influence is Billy Wilder, who at that time, uh, you know, was, was no longer working, but his movies like Some Like It Hot, The Apartment, Double Indemnity, were just amazing pieces of work. Um, also, I was uh, very heavily influenced by Robert Town, who was a, just an amazing screenwriter, wrote uh, Chinatown. And, and I call Robert Town the dean of American screenwriting. Excellent. Well, so what was the first, what was the first movie you sold then? What was the one that you were like, wow, I can make a, I can make a living doing this? Well, Jim, uh, my partner Jim Cash and I started working together, and uh, we, we had an idea and we were both doing – I was doing a lot of crew work, you know, trying to earn a living and, sure. and uh, you know, being able to hang lights, whatever I could do to, you know, just to pay the rent uh, while I was working on my craft. Uh, and we came up with an idea called Izzy and Mo, which was based on two prohibition agents in the 20s that would dress up in costumes and go into speakeasies <laughs> and pretend that they were a couple. One would dress up as a woman, one as a man, and then they'd have, like, a little bladder in the front of their, their clothes, and, and they'd pour the evidence – down at his bladder to collect it and said, there's bad news here, yep. and they would bust the speakeasy. So we just had a, it was sort of inspired by the sting, okay. and we sort of created that, and we actually uh, got a, a very good option for it. It was like, whoa, somebody's going to pay us to do this. It took us two and a half years to write that script, five drafts, uh, to make sure it was ready to go to town. Right. Uh, there's no point in sending out something that's not very good or it's half-baked because it will be cast aside instantly. Um, so we we just took up took our time and made sure we we did it right. right. So in terms of in terms of films, you know, making films that everybody has seen. Uh, uh, obviously, Top Gun was one of your your first big 
success and then everybody has seen that movie. Can you talk about how that how that came to pass? How did you end up uh, scripting uh, uh, Top Gun? Sure. Well, you know, it's interesting because it, 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 it was a series of events. Um, Jim and I were writing. We then sold a, a, a spec script and an auction, a next script. We then started taking assignments, which means that they were paying us to write up front. Sure. And so we had then we, – we wrote a – did a really good rewrite in the script. It sort of was – it's called Whereabouts. It was very popular throughout the town, and suddenly everyone had read the script. And what you want to have as a writer. Right. So suddenly the script goes viral is what we call it. Yep. And, and suddenly we were on the board. And the director, John Landis, hired us to do Dick Tracy, uh, which was – before Top Gun, about 1981, right. and that put us in touch ultimately with Jeffrey Katzenberg um, at Paramount, who was running head of production. He wanted yeah. us to write something for Paramount, and ultimately, Simpson Bruckheimer had found an article um, in California Magazine that said there was a school called the Top Gun School, right. and they thought there was a movie there, uh, and so... We were asked to write it, and, and I had a lot of concerns because at that point we had six unproduced screenplays. Okay, and I did, not, and I did not want to have a seventh unproduced. Right, um, because writing it is one thing; getting a movie made is entirely something. Absolutely. Else. So we had a lot of conditions. One, it had to be had to be shot up in the sky. We're not going to shoot this thing and with you know little bad uh, visual. They didn't have visual effects; all they had right. was models at that time. And, uh, well, Star Wars had visual effects. Um, and we wanted to make sure that the Navy was going to cooperate. Where are we going to get the plane? Right. And, and we really wanted to basically be left alone. That we let, us, let us figure this thing out. And uh, to their uh, credit, they basically said, yeah, okay. So we talked to the, went, went to the Pentagon. They said, yeah, we're on board. It sounds great. We'll give you the planes. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and so at that point, then it was a matter of doing a ton of research. The part of the interest for me is I had my private pilot's license. I got that okay. uh, when I was a student at the university, so I was already a pilot, and that was very intriguing. And uh, uh, so, but being a pilot of a private plane is very different than a fighter jet. Yes. So I did a lot of research because to write it properly, I had to really know what it was like. And so I got to do some jet rides, uh, which was one of the highlights of my life. And and the guys were great. So we went, went down to NAS Miramar, which is outside San Diego, and took off in an, in an F5F. And it was like nothing I'd ever experienced before in my life. Um, we did high-speed passes. We did dogfighting. I was up there for about a half, about 45 minutes, and came back exhausted. I'm sure. Drenched with sweat. Totally wiped out because you're pulling HGs and this whole process of flying and and, you know, high speed, you know, you're doing a thousand mile closure rate. And then you're pulling into these hard turns as you're keeping track with each other, vertical and upside down. And when I got off, I called my partner and said, this is not the movie we think this is. Right. These guys are incredible physical athletes. They are some of the most amazing people that they can do things in a three-dimensional upside down sphere that we're having trouble walking and talking. Right. And so that helped us really use a metaphor for what this is. Uh, and, and focus the movie. Well, I have to tell you, I was lucky enough uh, in 1999, uh, I got to do a Tiger cruise on the USS Constellation. And I had a friend of mine who was a f flight officer uh, on on the ship, and I was able to ride from uh, Pearl Harbor to Coronado. And it was fascinating to me uh, because I was effectively attached to this, you know, to this flight squadron on the uh, on the aircraft carrier, 
just how much when I was in that space, it was like, wow, this is really like Top Gun got it correct, right? In terms <laughs> of like the the sort of the personalities, the sort of tensions, everything about like you walked in and was like, wow, this really is. And but then there was also the flip side, of course, which was this was 1999, so it was 13 years after uh, Top Gun had come out, and of course, everyone on the pl- you know, <laughs> if you were in that squadron, you had the movie memorized, right? Yeah, and yeah. and and so there was you know this this flip side uh uh sort of experience of of Top Gun and what was so awesome was that every one of those squadrons I, I you could, when you're on the Tiger Cruiser sort of catch it at the tail end of the of their tour and so every one of the squadrons had made their own video that was basically <laughs> you know it was effectively like fighter pilot porn for lack of a better you know it was like they they every one of them was cut to like van halen or metallica or something like that and they and it really were they were basically trying to remake top gun i think <laughs> and every one of the, every one of the videos and it was a wonderful thing to sort of uh to basically be able to see it up close and personal like after having having watched it and you know to, and to that point Top Gun was uh, was listed in 2015. It was entered into the National Film Registry. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? It, you know, basically the Library of Congress, you know, determines that, that the film is culturally or aesthetically or historically significant. Can you talk about what it's like to have written a film that's like that influential as far as the culture goes? Well, it, 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 it's really surprising in so many ways. We were trying to write a really good movie, trying to write something that would play to the public. And, and you know, it, it's... Writing a movie, any movie that comes together, it's a matter of are the elements all there. You can't have just one element. So not only did we write a great script, but we had a great director, we had a great star. We had, you know, everything came together. And so that's that's been a pretty amazing process, just being part of that and, and you know, just seeing just how much it's connected with so many people on such a deep level. And the Library of Congress choosing that was, was really a, an amazing feeling. I mean, I, I teared up because a movie like that, usually it doesn't get recognized right. uh, because it's too popular. Sure. And there's sort of a bias against popular movies. Oh, it's popular. People like it. Well, we can't right. honor that. Let's find something <laughs> right. that nobody's seen. Right. You know, so it, I thought that was great. And I, and I do know, and it's been, it's been stated that Christopher Nolan was the, uh, uh, the champion. Uh, he was on the, uh, the committee and he championed the movie for recognition. Uh, and so I think uh, it was just very exciting. I know it played, I think, last year on the wall of the somewhere in Washington, I'm sure okay. the Library of Congress where it was outside. Mm-hmm. And I have seen in some interesting places. It, it, it played in Hollywood forever, which is the cemeteries, a screening they have in, <laughs> in Hollywood. Right. That was sort of sort of fun to go to that, and people dressed up and all that sort of thing. So, I mean, it, it feels I'm proud of it because I think the movie does represent uh, truly uh, a, a great part of this country, the military, um, and one of the great honors of writing it was meeting these men and women right. uh, and the seeing their dedication. The best compliment I've ever had was from one of the pilots who said, well, now I can take my family and show them what I do. Right. And to me, that was a compliment because we got it right on that level. Absolutely. And I felt a great sense of responsibility to the men and women when we were writing it. And I also always like to say that we had a great technical advisor, Peter Pettigrew, and Peter Pettigrew was a mid-killer in Vietnam. He was a top-down instructor, and, and he was the guy telling us stories uh, and keeping just keeping focused on what they do, who they are, uh, and the mission. 
Now, um, just to, to backtrack a little bit, I want to talk. One of the uh, the main themes uh, here in cinema with a twist uh, is is about collaboration, um, and there are, there's three different levels that I want to chat with you about about collaboration within cinema. And the first is 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 a more you know intimate one. You have a write, write, writing partner, uh, and you know that's actually a fairly common thing amongst uh, screenwriters. There's screenwriting teams, partnerships, or sometimes more than more than uh, just a duo. Um, there's the collaboration with uh, the next level up, where it's the sort of creative team of the directors. In this particular, in a lot of the cases for your films, you have major stars who I'm sure are going to have their input. And then the last level of of collaboration when you're making a giant film like this, where it is a significant budget and there's a significant rollout, there is obviously a major business element to it. And then the studios have their own level of collaboration with the screenwriters and the creative team. So, but let's start at the the beginning, like talk a little bit about your relationship with uh, Jim and, you know, how that worked um, as far as your craft. Well, the, the, it was interesting, it, you know, uh, Jim and I met, Jim was one of my screenwriting teachers at Michigan state. Okay. And uh, so we knew each other and I was a young filmmaker and he was a novelist. So I would read his novels and he would, you know, critique my movies. So we sort of stayed in touch. Uh, a little bit older than me, more mature, um, and, and a terrific, terrific writer. So we sort of collaborated. It just sort of happened. Um, and I, Jim lived in Michigan, and, and I live in, in Santa Monica. So <clears throat> we never wrote together in the same room. Okay. <laughs> we always we wrote long distance. Sure. Um, so, and which, was, which was actually great for us. It was actually the perfect thing. And we'd like to say that our relationship was words and music, meaning that one of us – each one of us had a slightly different skill. I think that's important in collaboration. The successful one is that each member has to bring something a little different to the partnership. Because if you both have the same skill, then in a way you're going to compete with each other for, well, whose line's better, whose scene is better. Right. And it was never like that. It was really about what's, what's best for the script. And, and we'd all bring, we bring what we are best to the process. Uh, and I think that's what made us uh, really good. Plus we had a, we like the same things. We like the same movies, same references. And we, because we worked on the telephone long distance, we'd have a problem. We'd hang up, come back in an hour. We'd virtually have the same solution right. uh, because we were thinking so much alike. Um, and what was great about being long distance was that we got a little heated. We just hang up. Well. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but it, and if I'm not mistaken, though, you guys were partners all the way through. And, and if I'm not mistaken, uh, Jim has passed away. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes, um, and and so I mean, so throughout your career, you had the same partner. Is that accurate? Yes. Okay. I've had other partnerships, and so it's been interesting to see the dynamics of how a partnership works. And I actually teach a class uh, where at USC, where we let have students meet up with uh, somebody and they try to collaborate together. Uh, and I, and I, I start the class by saying a list of like twenty five things on how to destroy your your working relationship. <laughs> Right. With with the word I being the first one. Right. Because if you're talking about I in a relationship collaboration, it's not going to succeed. It's we. It's always we. Gotcha. And if you're going to take credit for something in collaboration, it's not a collaboration. Um, because it doesn't matter who came up with the idea. It's the partnership that succeeds. Right. 
Well, at the, at the next level up, I mean, you've worked with a veritable who's who, uh, both as far as directors and as far as uh, leading performers. You've worked with Tony Scott, Warren Beatty, Ivan Reitman, Tom Cruise, Michael J. Fox, Robert Redford, Madonna. Like, I mean, it just goes on and on. Can you talk a little bit about, and I know sometimes it, I mean, each movie is different, like what the relationship yeah. might be with the director and where you are in the process, but you can, can you talk about, you know, especially when you're dealing with folks who have a very established name and career, how does that, how does that collaboration work? Where is it good? Where doesn't it work? Um, can you give a little insight to that? Sure. You know, I mean, there's this whole thing of, that somehow writers and directors are at loggerheads all the time. And, you know, I, I find that a bit silly because I don't really think that's the case. Right. Film is a director's medium. There's no question about it. Yep. And part of part of understanding that as a writer is that you might have started the project and the director might have come on later, but ultimately once he's there, it's basically his project. Right. Uh, and you have to serve the director. So the most important thing is making sure that you have the same vision. You're seeing the same movie. You're telling the same story. And if you have the same vision, then you have a partnership, and you're going to work together well. And from the writer's perspective, it then becomes my job or our job to basically take the vision that your director is giving to you and make sure that you are trying to put it on the page. If you have problems, figure a way to work it out through story, not through, well, this is my way. My no. It's, okay, here's what serves the story better. And at the end of the day, I learned very quickly that a director will not shoot a scene he doesn't believe in. Not a good director. Right. They just can't. And so we were working on Dick Tracy, and Walter Hill was brought on board. John Landis sure. uh, dropped out. And Walter, was, you know, a lot of, a lot of successful movies, also was a writer. And we were very young, and he was giving us notes on Dick Tracy. And we were, you know, young arrogant young guys, and we said, no, we don't think that's the way it should go. And he said, oh, okay, well, I'll write it tonight, and I'll give it to you in the morning. <laughs> and I said, so I said, oh, lesson learned. No, you know what? I think we can make this work. I get the yeah. idea. <laughs> you don't want the director writing. That's not a good thing. <laughs> so, you know, and I think the thing about collaboration is there is compromise. Right. And it's, the question is, and this is what's tough in a creative field, what can you compromise creatively? There's not only just one, you know, there, as William Goldman, great screenwriter, said, nobody knows anything. So you might think you're absolutely right, but nobody knows anything. Because if they did, every movie would be a hit. But in exactly. fact, so few are a hit because nobody knows anything. Right. You try what you think you know. So creatively, yes, you might have an instinct, but you've got to listen and work together with the director to figure out the best way for the movie. And, you know, sometimes they're right and sometimes they're not, but you have to, you have to go on board and realize that you're playing a supporting role uh, at a certain point in time. And I'm okay with that. And how much, so, I mean, literally all of your, your films have had the sort of the who's who of, of leading men as far as Tom Cruise, Michael J. Fox, uh, Robert Redford, uh, Tom Hanks. Like, how much do they influence, I mean, and I know each one's got their own you know, their own way, mm -hmm. the, their own approach. But as far as like, especially when you're, you're dealing with, you know, an A-list actor, like how much gets bumped back and it's like, you know, I, I can't, you know, I'm not going to do this scene or whatever. Like how much rewriting gets done based on who the star is? You know, it, it depends on several things. When are they brought in? At what point in the process? Are they, if they're involved in development, then obviously they're very much involved. If they're brought in at the end 
uh, not as much usually. Um, you know, I had two, I've had lots of great experiences with actors. I happen to like actors and I think they're very creative people and, you know, but they see things from a very different point of view. Mostly they see it from their role right. and they're, you know, as they say, and actors, they read their lines and, and that can be problematic because they may not be seeing the big picture. I say may not because it's not always the case. And the great experience that I had the best was with Tom Hanks on Turner and Hooch. Right. And Tom, this is before Tom's career really just skyrocketed. But he had had a solid career, and Tom was the only actor I've worked with who was at all the creative meetings uh, and was very concerned about the movie, not just, uh, you know, his role, but the movie and, and, and larger issues. And it was great because Tom is an amazing person. He is everything you think he is. <laughs> He's the real deal. He's the buddy next door. Anybody can talk to him. He's just very real and funny. So for me, it was like a kid in a candy store because Tom would throw out lines, and I'd write them all down. Go, These are really funny lines. He's come up numerous um, times on C Cinema with a Twist because we've actually had uh, – we, we run a uh, typewriter festival at the at the Greenville Drive-In, and I've had a number of uh, typewriter documentarians come in. <laughs> and so, you know, everybody, of course, he is the most famous typewriter uh, enthusiast in yes, the world. And so, you That's know, right. He's a collector, isn't he? He is, and, you know, and everybody, and everybody loves him for it. So he does seem like one of those folks who just is 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 what you want him to be so uh, it's always let, let me let me let me basically just go on a little diversion here yep. typewriters so i saw a story it was on national news it was about a underserved school somewhere might have been new mexico arizona i'm not sure and so the english teacher had the kids compose on typewriters not computers mm -hmm. and of course they fought it tooth and nail thought it was horrible and the whole thing by the end it taught them to be better writers because they had to think about what they were composing rather than just throw things on the page. And they had to really think of structure and how to detail their paragraphs. And to a T, they all thought it was an amazing experience. So there's, there's a plug for typewriters. When, when we do the event at the drive-in, it never ceases to fascinate me how much the kids love the typewriter. And I think I, there's a variety of reasons why I think that might be the case. I think one of them is is even though it is this analog destructive medium, there is also a a, a uh, you know instant gratification thing. You press the key, you get the letter, you know. But yeah, exactly. um, uh, there is something about it um, that you know that still speaks to people, despite the fact it's obviously you know an antiquated type you know a tool. Um, and I think that also speaks a little bit, again, this is another common theme on, on uh, Cinema with a Twist, where we talk about the idea of, use, you know, when you make the analog to digital switch, there is, you are moving from a destructive to, uh, you know, to a, a medium that can be replicated very easily and adjusted. And you do have to give that much more thought to what you are doing when the medium is destructive. Yes. Um, and so, you know, it, 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 it's been interesting to see. And do you see that? So make a good transition point to, to your students, because now you're, you're, you're presuming most of your students are probably in their 20s uh, and they are all computer savvy. And I'm assuming everything gets created, you know, all their screenwriting gets done on computers. Can you talk a little bit about like that mindset of making that transition from, you know, analog to digital, you know, as far as the screenwriting goes? Well, it was interesting because that happened, um, you know, we were writing on scripts and at one point, I mean, on typewriters, and at one point we actually had uh, three secretaries going around the clock to deliver a script overnight. Um, and because it just, the writing was so exhausting. And, and Jim and I were very particular about 
how a script had to look, how the page had to look, and very much, you know, we're, we care about, you know, if, if it's sloppy with misspellings, I see a lot of scripts with these things, and bad punctuation and, and bad grammar, it doesn't reflect well on the writer. Right. Um, you want to show the writer cares, because if you don't care about these things, it says, well, do you care about other things? Right. Um, so then when the transition came, so, so when we'd hand in a draft on, on a script, Everybody would say the draft is in, and everybody would take that draft and, and treat it with a lot of respect because they knew how hard it was to get that draft in. Right. Then the computer came in, and it was like I was working with Ivan Reitman on Legal Eagles, and with Ivan knowing the computer was there, he'd say, oh, give me another draft. So before <laughs> the computer came in, I had one, barely filled one, one uh, legal box uh, right. uh, to you know, store my scripts. On Legal Eagles, I had four boxes because we were printing a draft like every other week. Right. And the, the, what happened is the draft had it didn't have the same significance, and it was very malleable. I don't think it made the writing better. I, I don't want to sound like I like horses and not automobiles. Right, right, right. But it it just made it dismissible in a sense um, because you could futz with it too much and, and and play with it. I mean, computers are great for editing and you know and the whole thing. I would not move back on a daily basis. Um, but it actually did devalue the the draft because it would just push a button and give it to me. What's the problem? So uh, a few years ago when I was wearing my other hat uh, and I was uh, I was interviewing for a sort of a short documentary, uh, I was interviewing one of the head archivists at uh, Juilliard. And that was one of my questions uh, for her was I was I was interested in, you know, from a, from the scholarly look at um, at sort of legacy artworks you know, they were able to go back if they were going back and looking at Mozart or Bach or, you know, they, you know, obviously the revisions were done by hand and done by notes. And so, you know, when the scholar was able to sort of go back, you know, 300 years later and look at it, they could kind of see how how the art was developing through the changes. And, you know, now, obviously, like how, what what happens with modern screenwriters now? And it's not to say, you know, that everybody's out there writing, you know, Citizen Kane. Um, but how important is that to be able to track the changes uh, of, you know, especially of a significant film? Like, what? how does that work now? Do people save the old drafts? Do they save the work in progress? Do you Can you see the strikethroughs? Like, how does that work? Well, you know, there, there are, uh, with computer, the computer, there are revision modes. You put revision, can track your revisions yeah. and all that sort of situations. And, you know, part of one, of one of my strengths is rewriting, and, and I always tell students, and I'm talking about it, is that you don't always get better when you move forward in a draft. Scripts don't always get better. Sometimes the notes don't work. Sometimes you go down a wrong street, and you need to go back. And sometimes the scene, you've rewritten the scene. That doesn't mean it's better because you rewrote it, and that doesn't mean that, that you haven't lost something in the process. So whether, you're, whether it was with typewriters or with computers, it's important to track your drafts and, and make sure that, you know, you are improving things, uh, and uh, I do a lot of rewrites when I come on board. I like to see the work that's been done before me because often great work gets tossed aside because everyone's in the moment, in the moment, moving forward. And, you know, recovering really scenes that work, and no, no, you know what? We lost something here. This is really good. Let's put this back in. And people then say, oh, you know, it's a great idea. Yeah, I like that scene. You're right, you know. So it is important to track your progress because you don't always move forward. 
Um, we are, you are listening to Cinema with a Twist on WIOX Community Radio 91.3 FM. I am speaking with Jack Epps Jr., a veteran screenwriter. We're just going to pause briefly for a moment, uh, and we'll, we'll pick it back up in a second. WIOX is supported by Home Goods of Margaretville, corner of Main and Bridge Streets in Margaretville, New York, offering professional and at-home chefs in the Central Catskills region, cooking basics and tools of the trade. Home Goods carries Cuisinart, KitchenAid, All Clad, local pottery, and more. Open seven days a week, 845-586-4177 or hgom.net. WIOX is supported by the Roxbury Arts Group. Presenting an evening of dance, featuring former principal Martha Graham dancers and international dance ensemble in Taiwan. Curated by Young Young Sai, interweaving culturally rooted choreography with the art of storytelling through movement. At the Roxbury Arts Center tomorrow evening at 7.30. Tickets and more information at roxburyartsgroup.org and 607-326-7908. You're listening to Cinema with a Twist on WIOX Community Radio. My guest is Jack Epps Jr. He is a veteran screenwriter. And we were just, just sort of chatting about how things were tr- transitioning with your students. And I guess one of the things that I'm curious about, I mean, you're at the forefront. You're actually getting a, a preview of what we're going to be seeing over the next decade or two as you work with your students. Where do you think things are going story-wise? I mean, I think some things are immutable as far as, like, story and story structure. But then, we you know, we're also changing a lot of how we view movies, um, not only just, like, you know, in terms of, like, oh, we're watching it on our phone, but there's also, like, you know, people will be watching a film and then, like, live tweeting at the same time. Like, you know, people are more distracted. Can you talk a little bit about, like, what are you seeing from your students and how are you molding your students as far as dealing with these transitions? Well, you know, I, I, you can't do much about teaching how to write for distracted except write a really good movie exactly. <laughs> and hold their attention. <laughs> you know, I mean, if, if they're getting distracted, maybe you're not holding their attention long enough. You don't right. have enough a conflict in there. Um you know, I mean, we're seeing some big changes. We expect in the next 10, 15 years, a big shakeout in terms of movies because we have a generation that's not sort of going to movies. They're right. they're not used to paying for things. They like free content, <laughs> and that's how they've been raised. So, As a, as know, a theater owner, I understand this implicitly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, and movie passes are, you know, an attempt to make it more economically feasible because people sure. do understand they have Hulu. They'll basically pay a monthly fee for something like that, so it's so Movies are sort of moving into that direction. It's pretty clear with AMC coming out with big movie passes. Um, but we are seeing a lot of movies are moving over to Netflix. They're financing a lot. So it's, it's, we're, we're at a disruptive period. Right. And will, will theaters as we know them remain? Uh, several years ago, George Lucas and uh, Steven Spielberg were at the university, and they, they said their prediction was that movies will move into, like, theater, big extravaganzas, things that you'll go because you can only see it on this big wide screen. And I think right. there's a lot of truth to that, um, what's happening. The smaller, intimate movies, I think, will become much more on our platforms, whether it's on the, I mean, I couldn't watch a feature film on my phone, but yet students can. They do. Right. Um, yeah, to me, I would, I would, you know, I remember the first time I went to a Cineplex, a small screen, and I was, I want, you know, I'm a big movie screen guy, and it was like, no, I right. can't see this, though. Now it's, like, pretty traditional, you know? 
Well, you know, well, it's interesting. One of the anecdotes I, I use frequently on the show is about my experience with The Godfather. And so I grew up, you know, I'm 47 years old. Uh, the Godfather came out when I was a child, so I didn't see it uh, in the movie theater. I saw it on HBO. I saw it on VHS. Um, you know, everything constrained to small screen uh, dimensions. And it wasn't until I was about 25 or 26 that I went to see a, a Coppola retrospective uh, at the American Museum of the Moving Image. And I saw it the first time the way it was supposed to be seen, like on, you know, in its proper yeah. aspect ratio, in a big screen, in a theater with an audience. And I walked away like it was a trans transforming experience for me because I understood at that moment it was not the same movie that I had grown up with seeing on a small screen. It was and. In that moment, I understood the power of what it means to actually sit in a theater and and be presented with a story the way it was meant to be seen and not reboxed, <laughs> as it were. Um, and you know, and that continues to sort of drive. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I you know I I actually love being an exhibitor. I love having been in production. I think it's great. I think it's wonderful when when folks who are in the film business transition to one section and they get to see something completely different. You know, I was on the production side for so long, and then all of a sudden I'm on the exhibitor side, and you understand how important I'm. You know, I'm the last gate, so it's like yeah. having worked with a Absolutely. lot of the. Having worked with a lot of great cinematographers and and directors, like I want it when it goes up on the screen, like I want it to be the way they worked so hard to make it look and sound Absolutely. and feel. Um, and I think that's important. I do think that's one. Of, I don't mean to sound like an old dude who's like crunchy about people watching movies on their phones, but it's like, you know, the, these folks worked really hard to make this a compelling uh, audio visual experience and story. And it's like it's it's. I, they should watch it on a big screen. <laughs> well, I totally agree with you, and, and that's one of the things about what's the core of cinema is it's an emotional experience. You're in this, you're overwhelmed by the size of the screen. It becomes this huge uh, emotional experience for the audience, and you go into the movie. I mean, right. the most important thing that I tell my students is you must take your audience into the movie. They're not, if you're sitting dispassionately watching it and you think you're just watching a movie, you're you have failed in a sense because you need to step into the movie. Right. You're into the world of the Godfather. You're you're living with these people. You you know them. You understand who they are and, and you feel in yourself. You you care, you hope, you fear all these elements happening. Um and I think that's that thing about the big screen is it it overwhelms you. And it, and I think it's I think it's the same is true for the director. And it, what's nice is like, you know, the way we sort of program things at the drive and I do try and get I actually have nights where I have the directors in house and for them. And it's, and it's, I know it's an odd experience because people are in cars or they're out wandering. You know, it's not like as if they were sitting in, in a cinema, it's a different thing, but it gives them a moment to like, I'm showing my film in front of people. Are they reacting and are they acting, reacting correctly? And it's fun for me as an exhibitor to watch that when the directors come in and sometimes they get freaked out. <laughs> sometimes it's, it's a, a, a wonderful experience. And I think, having running a drive-in is even more interesting because I think for a lot of filmmakers, it's like, this is a, such an off the, you know, it's, it's like stepping back in time. And so to have their films run at the drive-in, I think is always like they geek out over it. It's fun to watch, but, um, Oh yeah. No, I, I, like I say, Michigan was, was a, was a very big movie town and, um, there were lots of drive-ins. I went to a ton of drive-ins and they're fun. They're just fun. And watching, watching moving your car, it's, it's, it's like personal. You bring your whole house with you. Right. You know, you, it's not just your car. It's, it's, that's a home environment. So, 
and there's something fun about it. I think I think you know it's also doing it with an audience is great. You know, right. especially comedy. I've written comedies, and and nothing's better than than sitting with an audience and laughing. I mean, it's a cathartic experience. It really helps. I mean, we're, you know, just comedy just helps relieve tension. You know, we found that with uh, right. you know, it actually helps for a healthy life is to laugh. Exactly. Uh, I mean, you laugh better when other people are laughing around you. There's no question about it. It's, and it's and, shared and so I would imagine you will actually have a, have an illuminating thought on on this thing that I have seen over the course of my life, where it's like the making the transition from. I I feel like folks who can perform comedy and write comedy are so much more advanced when it comes to actually having to do the serious work and the dramatic work because I think they understand I feel like it's all about the timing and the delivery and it's like it's so mission critical in comedy and so you see somebody like Tom Hanks and Michael J. Fox you see you see these folks who are able to they're so good at comedy that when they make the transition into uh, more serious roles they generally excel at it you talk a little bit about that transition well, as a you know, as a, the saying is, you know, dying's easy, comedy's hard. Right. And, <laughs> I mean, really, I mean, I can make yeah. an audience cry really quickly. I mean, it's not hard. I've done right. it many times. And it's not hard. Making an audience laugh, that's really hard. Um, and that's the hardest thing in the world. And it's incredibly satisfying because it's that feeling that they – because you don't know, I mean, especially in movies. Uh, in TV, you have an audience. You pretty much you get this feedback week to week. You know, you've right. got a room. You know what your comedy is. But as a feature comedy writing – you're just putting it out there, and the director goes, yeah, I think this is funny. And the actor, yeah, I think it's funny. We shoot it and think it's funny, and, and you put it up on the screen, and if nobody laughs, you go, whoa, that's really painful. Ouch, ouch, ouch. Um, and, you know, the line between comedy and drama is really thin. I mean, basically, uh, comedy is a drama with laughs. Right. Okay? If there's, not a, if there's not a drama at the heart of your comedy, if there's not something serious that's being explored, then it's just a bunch of jokes, and, and that's boring. But if, it's, if you can... Deal with issues, uh, and also at the same time put a funny spin on it. It's, it's easier to sort of to take. So for actors, especially that one step to go to drama is really close. They're actually doing drama in in a sense, just drama with comedy. Um, so that's that's why. And the other thing I think when we see those actors, we think it's funny, and we suddenly see them in dramatic role. It's so striking to us right. that it actually makes it land harder. Uh, because we've seen them laugh, and I think maybe in some way subconsciously we're going, uh-oh, here's Tom. Wow, he's really in – this is horrible. I love Tom. Oh, what's happening to him? You know, right. and I think it emotionally pulls us in ways we're not even aware of. Well, as I, as I uh, mentioned to you when we spoke on the phone before the show, it's like The Secret of My Success is one of my favorite like movies from that genre. And I think you know part of it is movies to me – are also, you know, you put a marker on them because of where you are in your life. Um, and, you know, Secret of My Success came out when I was 16 years old. I actually saw it uh, at a drive-in now that it, uh, like, so the, the funny thing is I saw, uh, you know, on a personal note, I, you know, the town that I grew up in central Australia for the second half of my childhood, the only movie theater we had was a drive-in movie theater. And so I saw all the movies that came out, all the great movies in the 80s. I probably saw Top Gun uh, at the drive-in as well, now that I'm thinking about it. But I specifically remember seeing uh, Secret of My Success um, because it was a double feature with uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And, oh, sure. and the reason nope. why I can remember that is because both movies have uh, Yellow's uh, Oh Yeah in it. Um. Yes, that's right. And that was a temp track. That was actually a temp track. So really? Putting a movie together, editing it. Okay. You probably know 
they'll throw in temp music sure. just until they get the uh, the composer composes something. Yep. And of course everybody loved it and we and, and the question was well, is this a pretty well known piece? Can we do that? Right. Well, it works. <laughs> do you know do you, ha- complaining. do you happen to know if Ferris Bueller also used it as a temp track or was in No, no, I think it was I think it was composed for that. <laughs> okay. Or at least all right. Well, no, and I, I think you know it's one of those things. Like again, I, I, I sort of at, at that age, I actually was kind of a dead ringer for Michael J. Fox. So I had a you know I had a, I had a sort of stake in his. <laughs> In his in his role, and I just like he was just so optimistic. I think one of the things that I loved about that film in particular is I think it sort of captured that particular level of optimism that existed sort of in the mid '80s. Um, And I I just there's so many elements of it. I also I refer to it, and I don't mean this in a in a deprecating way. Like I, I I consider it like one of the 80s movies in large part because it's also like it the title track is done by night ranger and if you go back and watch the, and you go back and you watch the the night ranger music video that goes with it that's effectively you know an ad for for the movie it's a it's like it is the most 80s thing uh, like i can imagine and it's just i don't know i, I love I, I love how that film uh just speaks to me or to that particular age um, and maybe if you just have a couple minutes just to talk about how that movie came to pass and, and a little bit about the relationship there as far as getting Michael J. Fox to that, that role to me seems the closest to Alex P. Keaton. So I don't know, you know, if there, if that was part of the conversation involved, was it written with him in mind? Would, did he come on later? Could you just talk a little bit about how sure. Secret of My Success came to pass? Sure. Well, at that point in time, we we still had no movies produced. Uh, Dick Tracy was very popular throughout the the town. So Frank Price, who was the executive at Universal, had a movie he was shooting this summer. Uh, it had a different name, Family Affair, and he had Michael J. Fox from Family Ties starting, let's say, on June one. Right. Had to finish on August twenty fifth because he had to go back to his show. Okay. So Frank had a script. Didn't particularly like it, so Michael was already involved. <laughs> right. Had a director, Herb Ross, and Herb Ross was sure. a fabulous director. Yeah. The best experiences I had with anybody, uh, a Broadway director, uh, also filmed Broadway. And so basically, for a screenwriter, it was just a, a wonderful, fun time because Frank said, look, we don't like this script. We, would you guys take a pass at it? We're going to shoot virtually whatever you give us because we're starting when you deliver it. <laughs> okay. So that's like the greatest thing in the world. So yeah. we, we married a couple ideas together. Uh, especially the, uh, I love Billy Wilder. So playing with a character who has a double uh, identity uh-huh. uh, in the movie was an idea I, I brought. We brought to the film because we wanted to do the Billy Wilder sort of some like a hot thing, where okay, it's this dual character within. And we also thought, you know, why does business have to always be evil? Right. right. You know, it's, it's, it's an ambition. Somebody wants to run a company. They really want to do this thing. So rather than demonize that whole concept, we said, let's just go with it. I mean, I can. We're running a company, so it'd be cool. Right. Uh, and uh, so we just had a fun time, and just it was one of those things where it just fell the right way. Um, and we were pretty much left alone again. Uh, Herb was not involved early on. Once the script came on, he our draft came on, then we worked with Herbert a little bit. Right. Shot in New York. So it was also Michael J. Fox. We were writing for Michael J. Fox right from the very beginning, which which we liked because you have the voice of the actor in your head, right. and you have you can hear him say the lines rather than trying to picture your best friend from high school or something like that. Exactly. Um, and yeah. I will say, so, and you bring up an interesting point uh, about filming in New York. It's one of the reasons, it's another reason why I have an absolute love for that movie is uh, it's filmed in New York. I mean, properly yes. filmed, properly filmed in New York. 
And nothing makes me crazier than when, you know, I'm watching a film that's supposed to be New York and it's, you know, Vancouver or it's, you know, <laughs> you know, Toronto or like whatever they've, 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 anyway, it doesn't capture the whole thing. And it really captures all the, all the locations capture New York at a particular time. It, it really is. And I mean this in the best possible way. It's a, it's a time capsule in the sense that it's like, well, I agree you, with you. you. You just, you get it and it feels uh, authentic for what it was at that time. Um, and I think I think that's Herbert Ross. I think as, as you know, talk about collaboration, we enjoyed working with Herb. He was great. He got it because he was a uh, Broadway director. He had more reverence for the written word, and he wasn't so quick to change it. Uh, and there were things that we tried out, and we go, I don't know if this works, but and he just made it work, and it was. It was and fun. if I if I recall, Herbert Ross also he had a background in in choreography or dance or something to correct. Yes, I think okay. it, yes, I think he did. And I think yeah. and I think that's one of the things that lends itself. Uh, to the movie as well, because I feel like while it has, it, you know, it has this 80s montage, I feel like the montages all have, like, they're almost dance numbers, uh, you know, yeah. and it's Michael J. Fox running from one point to another point, like, trying to change clothes in in <laughs> in the process, you know, <laughs> and um, it has a very musical, choreographed element to it that is makes it fun and kinetic and, ener you know, and energetic. Um, and, and, you know, and we have, yeah, and at the end of the movie, there was a French farce shot at the house, which is really hard to do. Um, and we wrote it going, mm, I, I, you know, this is going to be really hard to shoot. And, of course, Herbert just he did it beautifully, covered it wonderfully, and, and uh, you know, is it, the great climax of the movie. So it, it was... Uh, and, and, you know, what's interesting is that I, I don't feel like the film gets as much uh, recognition as it should, given, like, I, it, just looking at its box office numbers, it did quite well. Is that That's not an error, right? I mean, they... No, it was in the top ten of the year. Yeah, and um... so yeah, no, it, it actually did very well as a very successful summer movie. But you're right; it just sort of gets passed over for some reason. Um, maybe because it's business again. You know? <laughs> right, right, right. But you know, Michael Michael's great in it. He's really wonderful. And um, and so, who came up with the name Brantley Foster? Uh, we came up with the names. It was just, yeah. it's just, it sticks, it's like one of those things, like, right. I, it's, I I can't separate Brantley Foster from the movie, you know, it's like, <laughs> just, right, no, Brantley Foster, and then there's Carlton Whitfield. Sure. So, Carlton Whitfield. Carl, right. named Carlton, comes from the suite mate I had at Universal, who at that point was an assistant to a producer, and Carlton was Carlton Cues, right. of course, is known as the uh, showrunner of Lost and, and a lot of other shows. Funny. So, I, did, I borrowed Carlton's name. <laughs> <laughs> I said, do you mind if I use your name? I love it. It's got a great. Ring. That's good. I hope you know. I know he's a showrunner for for Lost, but I hope he actually uses that as like his, you know, his his, uh, you know, yeah. in, intro line. It's like, no, I'm the Carlton from from Carlton Whitfield in the Secret. Exactly. Of My Success. Exactly. Well, it is. It's a wonderful movie. Um, the what I think is so amazing about this business, and for someone like yourself who has been in it for for a while and written these wonderful movies, is like the effect that it has on people, like. I always like my guests who have had some sort of impact on me to just be aware that you've had this impact, right? So it's like I watched that film, you know, I watched Secret My Success in the drive-in in Alice Springs, Australia, you know, when I was 16 years old, and I loved the movie. And it's like that's one of the things that's so wonderful about this business is I feel like you can bring joy and meaning to strangers from one end of the world to the other. So kudos to you. for Well, that's sort of what, we, what the fun of it is, is to connect with an audience. I mean, that's really the point. The point is to, you know, I, I love movies. So, I mean, I love them. And I love to go in there and just get lost. And isn't that what we want to do, get lost in this world and sort of step out of our, our 
you know, our own troubles and, and project ourselves and, and be Michael J. Fox for a while or, yeah. And I, I, I I absolutely was Brantley Foster in that movie. And, you know, I just, I (laughs) I just, I, I I just love it. And uh, I want to thank you for being on today and thank you for also, you know, you're now in a professorial role and passing this on to the next generation. Um, and we're running out of time because I really wanted to actually hit you a little more for like what we were going to, you know, so, some some of the other changes that are happening out there in the world. But we're going to leave it there at this moment. And um, Dwight, I enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Uh, we've been speaking with Jack Epps Jr. Uh, he's a veteran screenwriter, but he's also uh, the author of Screenwriting is Re- Rewriting, The Art and Craft of Professional Revision. I'm assuming that's available in all the... Uh, usual outlets. Uh, if somebody's looking Am- to purchase it, Amazon. It's Amazon. It's not. It's not, it's not in the stores. Amazon only. Unfortunately. Okay. Very good. Well, Jack, thank you so much for being on, and uh, we appreciate it. Okay, my pleasure. A lot of fun talking about it. Thanks, Jack. Bye. Take care. All right. Well, we got just a couple minutes left uh, here on uh, Cinema with a Twist, and so let's just take a quick look at what is playing in the. Uh, uh, WIOX listening area. At the Greenville Drive-In, it's uh, Top Gun. Uh, Mountain Cinema and Hunter uh, has Beirut, Incredibles 2, and Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Orpheum uh, will be showing Tully. At the Park Theater Cobleskill, they have Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Uh, Southside Mall in Oneonta has Uncle Drew, Sicario, Day of the Soldado. Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom in 2D and 3D. Incredibles 2, Tag, Oceans 8, Hereditary, Solo, A Star Wars Story, Deadpool 2, and Book Club. At the Spectrum 8 in Albany, it's Won't You Be My Neighbor, Animal, American Animals, Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom, Incredibles 2, Oceans 8, First Reformed, Book Club, RBG, The Seagull. And finally, at the Wyndham Theater, it's Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom, Incredibles 2, and Oceans 8. As always, you'll want to uh, check the theater websites for showtimes and directions. And just before, we still got a couple minutes before we wrap up, but let's... Um, we do want to try and hit one little uh, cocktail note. Uh, because we were talking today about um, the U.S. Navy, uh, let's talk for a moment about the most famous uh, U.S. Navy-type sailor drink, and that is actually a British invention, <laughs> uh, which is the Dark and Stormy. So the Dark and Stormy was actually uh, created in Bermuda. Um it, it it seems to have been born out of the uh, Gosling uh, Black Rum Company, uh, and in fact, uh, they have patented. Uh, I didn't even know you could patent a recipe, but um, but Gosling's has actually patented the Dark and Stormy recipe, and they will actually litigate it. Uh, they won't show up at your bar if you're mixing it with some other uh, with some other rum. But you know, if you put it out there in the world uh, as a rum company or uh, bloggers that and you use some other uh, rum other than Gosling's Black Seal, uh, you probably will get a note from their uh, from their attorneys. Um, the Gosling Company was born in Bermuda in 1806. Um, English family was actually uh, planning to come to America, but uh, they ended up um, not making it there before their charter expired. Expired. 
Um, so they ended up um, staying in Bermuda and, and making Gosling's rum. And somewhere around World War I, uh, a bunch of British soldiers uh, decided to mix that rum with the ginger beer that was being made in another part of uh, the, the uh, Bermuda Islands. And the rest is history. Apparently, one of the uh, uh, sailors uh, noted that it was the color of a cloud that only a fool or a dead man would sail under. So very, uh, very cheerful stuff there. The dark and stormy. Um, and like I said, it, it's uh, it's actually uh, its recipe is patented. Uh, so the technical uh, recipe, the legal recipe for the dark and stormy is two ounces of Gosling's black seal rum uh, topped with ginger beer. The uh, lime that's often used um, is actually not uh, part of the original uh, recipe. So there you have it, the dark and stormy. All right, we're going to wrap it up here on Cinema with a Twist. My next uh, guest I'm very excited about as well. Um, I'm going to have Nana Sen on. Uh, she is the documentary director uh, responsible for um, The Song Keepers which is a documentary about the Central Australian Aboriginal Women's Choir. Uh, they've been singing in their traditional languages uh, sacred songs, like uh, Christian songs, but based on uh, German choral arrangements that came over with German missionaries in the 19th century. So there's very interesting cross-cultural uh, extravaganza happening there. And uh, Nana has been traveling with them. In fact, the Songkeepers are currently here in the United States. They just performed... Uh, the other night at the Kennedy Center, and they will be here on July 5th uh, in New York City. Um, you can find out more details about that um, at cinemawithatwist.com. As always, if you want to drop me a note, uh, questions or or thoughts about anything that we've talked about on the show, uh, I am twist at drivein32.com or come to the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash cinemawithatwist. That's it. Uh, and we will see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening, and remember to live curious.